Hello, folks. My name is Spencer George, and you're listening to The Good Folk Podcast. Just over two years ago, I returned to my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina for the summer to report on rising sea levels and the creative response by artists who were, then and now, focused on generating public understanding even in the midst of collapse. I went into the work feeling hopeless and left feeling inspired to believe in the power of community, art, resistance, and resilience in activist traditions across the Low Country, a place full of as much violence and oppression as beauty and history. Along the way, I came into contact with hip hop artist and Low Country native Benny Starr, who became fundamental to my environmental philosophy. As he said to me all the way back in the summer of 2021, when asked about the artist's role in responding to climate change, Art is one of the natural predators of power. The goal of art is disruption. It is disruption that inspires joy, freedom, and community. You might be able to snuff out one voice, but you can't snuff out the collective. The work we do here at Good Folk, and indeed the core of what I now consider my life's work, both in this project and in my larger academic research, is to organize, unite, and empower that collective, even against all the odds. At the top of his website, Benny quotes James Baldwin, who writes that a society must assume that it is stable, but the artist must know, and he must let us know, that there is nothing stable under heaven. Our role as artists is to reckon with the world around us, which exists in constant flux. But it is also to help us find communal roots amidst flux, something I cannot emphasize the importance of when it comes to climate work in the American South, which my academic research now centers around. Both Benny and I consider the South Carolina Low Country home, which means we both know how high it is at risk of being lost. There are times where I think it would be easier to let go, to let the water wash it all away and for us to restart in a place with less tumult, violence, and division. Of course, in America, a country founded on colonialism, escaping those legacies becomes impossible. And here again, I turn to what Benny has taught me over the years, to think of the water as a tool. Water reveals as much as it washes away. It shows us the spaces where community activism is needed most. Our work now is to return to those spaces of tension and believe in something better. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be joined by Benny today on the podcast for a conversation about legacy, environment, and the power of creative practice. Benny's art reflects the landscape of the low country where black music and Southern culture intersect with deep roots in hip hop, gospel, jazz, blues, and rock, all of which are woven with rich histories of resiliency, eliciting a quest for a higher calling in those who connect with them. Benny's most recent solo project, a water album, takes up this quest. It was recorded live with his fellow bandmates, the 420s, at Charleston Music Hall, and released on Juneteenth, 2019. Following the release of a water album, Benny has been featured in the Oxford American's yearly Southern music issue and made history by becoming the first hip hop artist to perform at Spoleto Festival USA, as well as a water album being named South Carolina's best album in 2019 by the Free Times. In 2020, Native Son, a duo of Benny Starr and harmonious singer, songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist Roger Cliche was formed. Together, they are redefining what it means to be dynamic while remaining highly respected. When merging the comforting allure of Southern breakfast at grandma's house with the triumphant command of a revolutionary's chant, you get the sonic resonance that their sound taunts, decadent and nourishing. 
Native Son's most recent release, The Land, is a rallying cry that echoes the injustices of black legacy farmers at the hands of the USDA, and is part of an ongoing partnership with the Acres of Ancestry Initiative, the Black Agrarian Fund, and the Black Farmers Appeal, Cancel Pig for Dead campaign. As part of the ongoing collaboration, Native Son screened Re Restoration, a concert film, on Juneteenth, 2020. In the fall, Restoration was also released for a limited time viewing to coincide with the Justice for Black Farmers Act of 2020, introduced by U.S. Senators Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, and Kirsten Gillibrand on November 30th. To date, Restoration has been screened at the Pan-African Film Festival, World Fest Houston International Film Festival, Seattle Black Film Festival, Real Sisters of the Diaspora Film Festival and Lecture Series, Nevada City Film Festival, Rhode Island Black Film Festival, Las Vegas Black Film Festival, Nice International Film Festival, and more. The U.S. Water Alliance welcomed Benny as their inaugural One Water Artist in Residence in October of 2020. Through his 18-month residency with the Alliance, Benny worked with staff in the Alliance Network to infuse arts and cultural strategies into thinking, problem-solving, and programming. He was named one of Grist's 50 Fixers of 2021, a list that includes emerging leaders in climate, sustainability, and equity who are creating change nationwide. Benny currently serves as a Senior Fellow of Arts and Culture with the U.S. Water Alliance, integrating artistic approaches and cultural strategies to help advance and accelerate our ability to achieve a sustainable water future for all. I'll leave you with Benny's own words from his artist statement, which I think say it best. My work is spiritual. It's ritual, improvisation, repetition, and imperfection. It is a space for dreaming, but equally important, a space to fail, reflect, refine, and improve. And I hope that when people engage with my creations and process, it moves them to engage deeply with their creativity in everything they do. Yes, here's to engaging deeply. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Tell me what you're gonna do. Yeah, tell me what you're gonna do. We'll go ahead and get started here so we're not taking up yeah. the whole Saturday. But Tell thank you for being here and joining us. And we'll have your bio at the beginning so everyone will get to hear about all of the incredible work and art and just things that you make. You are truly, truly just one of the coolest people. But I would love to start, since we are both um, kind of people of the Carolinas, where is home to you? And how do you think about the low country in position to that? Home to me is Pineville, South Carolina. Um, it's a small town in the northern part of Berkeley County, and it is actually positioned between where Lake Mutri and Lake Marion kind of converge. Um, so, you know, the impact of water growing up, whether I was conscious of it, um, it's always been really, really influential. I just remember, you know, you can't drive. Uh, too many miles this way or that way or another way without crossing some body of water. So that is where I call home, Pineville, South Carolina, where there's two lakes in South Carolina converge. And where are you these days? These days, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. So not too far from South Carolina. I like staying close enough, but I love the South. So I think I'm going to most likely always call the South my home. And it still allows me to get back to South Carolina, like, you know, under three hours back and forth, see my family, connect with friends and fellow artists and folk in the community. As someone who also went from South Carolina to North Carolina, I'm like, I don't want to be more than, I'm five hours from Charleston, which is where I'm from, but I don't want to be more than like a six hour drive max. There's something about when I, 
and I don't know if you relate to this, but sometimes I just need to see the water and knowing that I can drive to it and see it. And I don't, I can't put that feeling really into words, but I think for people who grew up around water, I realized at times when I was living in very landlocked places, how the water has always been something that I've grown up around and has always felt like home more than anything else. And not having access to it is a really disconcerting feeling, I think, when it's something that you're used to and you learn how to grow up and live with, frankly, because, you know, just like you're saying, the water is constantly moving in and out. And it's it's not something that is always there in the in the background of a lot of places, especially in the Carolina Low Country. It is something that you really learn to live alongside and live with. And that to me feels like home. Yes. Yes. I relate to that a hundred percent. I mean, even where I live now, I live like less than five minutes from a lake um, in North Carolina, Lake Wiley. I'm not really far from Lake Norman and I, everything you just said I relate to greatly because I, I really need to be close to water. I need to feel that. Growing up with that, you take it for granted sometimes. Then as I've become an adult, I realize like how much I need to be in synergy with that. So yeah, I relate to that. <laughs> so when you think about water, and your childhood and kind of the work that you do now, how would you draw that line or make that connection? Because obviously water is very influential in a lot of your work. And of course, I want to talk about that more in depth. But thinking about the experience of growing up around water, when did it start to become something that you felt like you wanted to pull into your work? You know what I think? Um, so I graduated high school in the Low Country, and then I went on to USC Upstate did about a year and a half, kind of two years. And then I walked away from school to pursue being an artist. And I started on that journey, <clears throat> excuse me, I started on that journey and I remained in the upstate of South Carolina for a while as that journey kept progressing. And I, you know, put out these projects and mixtapes and all these things and trying to build uh, not only my profile and continue to put out quality work in South Carolina, but also trying to contribute to building, helping to build alongside like a lot of my contemporaries an infrastructure for artists, hip hop artists, musical artists who are independent, who value staying independent for them to be able to thrive. And there came a point when I was in the upstate still, it's maybe at after about 10 years had passed of doing all this work alongside so many other brilliant artists who were doing that work across the state of South Carolina that I thought I have to leave now and go back home. There's something calling me back home, whether it was the energy of what was calling me back home, what was going on at that time in the low country with all these new artists with different disciplines, multi-hyphenate. They were just, it was a, a beautiful energy happening. And I felt like somehow my work wasn't done uh, where I was from. Uh, and once I came back to the low country, you know, of course, now climate change is staring us in the face, rising sea levels in the way that all exacerbates already deeply entrenched inequities and injustices. And we already know who ends up suffering the most and who become displaced and who becomes um, victims in that process. Um, and while I'm back in the low country, after I came back down to the low country, there was something I, I wanted to, whatever I was going to create. And I think in a way, this was the beginning of me becoming more conscious of 
social practice, so to speak. Um, while I'm in this place here and now, trying to be very present with it, also trying to connect with the history that has led us to where we are presently and the way that the present and history will affect where we end up in the future, I wanted to connect with something very honest, connect with something very real, immerse myself in the community, be able to listen, be able to learn, be able to collaborate with people across different sectors, whether it's education, whether it was, you know, the church, whether it was folks in the community, other artists, activists, uh, scientists, engineers, and create something that was honest while living, I guess, living and creating to my highest and best use as an artist, right? And it, and it ended up being water. I had a conversation with a friend who was an educator. I was like, you know, I don't know what I, I don't know what I need to be creating right now, but I need to be creating something. And, you know, I'm a water sign, you know, I'm a water sign. So she was like, you know, I am too. You're, so maybe, maybe there's a parallel there now that I'm thinking there about is. it. I'm like, all of us who work in climate work tend to often be water signs. There you go. That's so, I did not know that. We're going to get to that. <laughs> um, but she said, you're a water sign. So just, you know, be like water. And I don't think she realized what she sparked, but it sparked that, uh, that connection to everything that I was experiencing. If it rains for 15, 20 minutes, sometimes it stops traffic because people are knee deep in water. And now at that time I was living in James Island, living in the low country and water was the, was going to be that, uh, centralizing theme that I could create around to live to that highest and best use and, and, and create an album or create a body of work that of course functions as music in the body of work, but then the capacity for it to function as much more than that was really important. I'm thinking about when I first met you a couple of years back, which is when I got into work in climate and climate change and sea level rise, I grew up actually outside of Lake Norman before I lived in Charleston. So we've kind of made the opposite path. Really funny um, now that I'm thinking about it, but seeing kind of lake water and then moving to the coast. And for a long time, I remember thinking that the way in which everything floods in Charleston is just part of life on the coast, that it had never been presented to me as anything that was a larger issue. You know, I remember my high school campus flooding and we'd get out of school for days on end, like every year for hurricane season or, you know, kayaking down streets that have just turned into rivers and constantly having to be moving my car, looking for higher ground and all of these things just seeming very normal. And that that was just part of life on the coast. And I never stopped to think about it as these are things that are symptomatic of a larger issue. And I remember when I went to college, I was taking an eco-criticism course. And that was the first time I actually started to look at the data. And it it blew my mind. Um, and it I think it really ignited something to me that I was like, I spent my whole life in South Carolina not feeling like it was home and wanting to leave. And now that I've left, I'm staring down the idea that we might actually lose this place. And for a long time, I think there was a a part of me that was okay with that. And then I realized what, once it became a reality that you know, you're looking at the data and you're saying by 2040, my home might not exist. And realizing that that was not something I was ready to just let go. That even though, Char I mean, Charleston specifically is a super complicated city with a really violent past, but there are things about it that I think are worth looking at. And the question I set out when I started into this research years back was, 
is this a place worth saving? And for, for people who don't know, that's how I initially got in contact with you and I was writing for Bitter Southerner about this, a piece that had come out of that college course that I later um, went back to Charleston and adapted by talking to artists who actually were trying to, I think, answer some of these similar questions and, and think about what do we do with a city that we might lose in a region that is so complicated and, and to look at it right now through a Southern studies lens I think a lot of the country is really okay with losing the South in ways that have not entirely sat right with me. That I, of course, want to talk about climate mig migration and the idea of, you know, the South faces undoubtedly the worst effects of climate change. And that's still the work I think both of us are doing. But when I talk to people who are not from the South about that, everyone's like, well, good luck. You know, you're all just going to have to leave. And like, there's people are okay because I think the way we see the South painted is as a, as a not great place. And so everyone's fine to lose that. And, and I think what I've been grappling with for such a long time is, can we, can we lose these? And what is lost if we do? Which is how I got in contact with you and ended up writing this piece um, that, thanks to your wisdom, kind of took the shape of, can we learn to work with the water and see the water as something that is capable of damage, but also capable of reveal and of showing us where these cracks are, but of at the same time, bringing communities together and igniting people around a common cause because water is a life force. And if we can learn to live with it right, we could really, we could really do kind of some amazing things with this. And it's been amazing to see since the two and a half years since that piece came out, I guess, yeah, almost two, two years now, um, to see the work that you've continued to do and the way this conversation has grown. But I, I'm very interested in the idea that even still, we see flood water and it is happening more and more often in this place. And it is something that people still think of as just an everyday effect of living on the coast, especially with South Carolina and Charleston County specifically getting so many people moving there during COVID that have not lived through hurricanes. We have, you know, they have, we have had a bad hurricane in a few years, which we're very, very lucky for. Um, but I think it's, it's not quite a lived reality for a lot of people and they don't see climate change the way it is playing out in the South is something that is like a genuine threat. And I think your work has always um, kind of put it in people's face in a way they can't look away from, but it's also not painting water as this thing we have to be afraid of, it's painting water as as a tool in our kind of quest for collective liberation. So that's my long history of how Benny and I kind of know each other and our, our story. But I, yeah, I'm interested for sure in your experience of water both as this tool, but also as this kind of force of fear and an everyday effect, and then also how you've seen it change in, in the last few years, even since we've just last spoken. Yeah, I so much of what you said resonates with me. Working with one of the things that resonates with me, as I've especially over the past few years when I've had the opportunity during COVID uh, to not, I'll, I'll use the word retreat for lack of a better phrase, but to take time to actually think about and process my own experiences in life and to decide how I feel about them and what I want to do with how I feel, um, what I want to recreate, how I'm going to use those experiences as it bleeds into or influences my work and where I consistently come back to is there's this photo. I love John Coltrane. I, I, I really, 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 um, I'm a hip hop artist and I love hip hop and I love soul. I love this like wide black 
canon of genius in the way the way that we have historically displayed it uh, relative to our existence and kind of positionality within this country. Um, and the jazz artists, they're so, they are just deep on a level where that really kind of appeals to me. And Coltrane has been one of those artists who's been a big influence in me or, or influence for me over the past few years. But he has a quote, this is one of my favorite quotes from him. He talks about all the musicians being able to do is get closer to sources of nature and so that you feel like you are in communion with the natural laws. And when you talk about working with the water and working with nature, that that really resonates with me. So I, over the last two years, as I've been thinking about my own life and my own experiences and where I grew up and how I've engaged with others and how I've encountered the world, it brings me back to this fundamental need for a shift in narrative around creativity and what creativity actually is and how we utilize it, its real function, and the role that it could have in us working together to solve these problems, not just from a uh, innovation and collaboration standpoint, but definitely those as well, but also in the way that creativity on a very foundational level is this innate need in us as human beings that we have to create if we change or are willing to accept a change or shift in the definition of what creativity and creative process means and by that i'm talking about creativity as not just a thing but a process that you engage in and creative process as this experience or this encounter with the world around you by it, an extremely or an intensely conscious human being that thrusts you into some process to bring something new into the world of value. It's not just a thing in a moment, but it is based on that encounter, that collision, that experience with the world around you as a conscious human being that says, huh, this is sent me into a, uh, 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 on a journey or into a process where I need to bring something new to the world of value. And that could be a new idea. That could be a new approach. That could then be creativity taking form as one of the many uh, uh, variations of art as we know it. That is where innovation then becomes born out of. But we have to shift the importance of creativity in this work away from the way society has told us creativity functions. Like it's only for the weird folks. It's only for the extremely eccentric folks. That is a lie. That is one of the great lies. And it allows us to kind of, in many ways, other artists or other the idea and the importance of creative process in and of itself to the end of us being able to say, just do what we tell you to do keep this machine going, even if we realize that this machine in and of itself is stripping us away of our, stripping our humanity away from us and ultimately killing us, killing so many of us, displacing so many of us and killing the planet, this world, this world that, of which shows us creativity, the very creativity that we mirror, the very creative process that we mirror. So it brings me back to that quote about as an artist, I'm not a scientist. 
I'm not an engineer. You know, there are people who know a lot more than me in specific areas of concentration, but as an artist trying to live up to my highest and best use, how do I, like Goldfrey says, how does me and my work bring me closer to, you know, the sources of nature so that I'm in communion with natural laws, working with water, and it comes back to me to creativity, creative process. I know that was a lot. Now you're speaking just, I think, straight to my soul right there. Part of my creative process as I've gotten older and come back south and just learned a lot of things as an artist has really been, I think creativity has to come first and foremost from paying attention to the world around you. And, you know, I went to New York to be an artist, right, and to like be in this art world and be part of a community. And I think in a place like New York, at least for me personally, all that happened is I became so detached from the world around me and myself that I like could not make art at all. Like I just had no idea what I was writing or saying. And I, I notice now that when I am writing things here, the very first thing I always do is I just sit and pay attention to the world around me. And I, I try to be in tune with that. And I think it has to come from that. And I am someone who I really do believe that art has to be responsive to culture. And I don't think they're separate at all. But so much of that in my mind is, you know, Mary Oliver writes that attention is the beginning of devotion. And when you pay attention, I just said to that something. quote to someone on the phone a couple of days ago. It's like, I'm sorry for interrupting. Carry on. I love that quote. Yeah, yeah. No, no, go, go for it. Because I, I could talk about Mary Oliver all day. That's serendipity. I just, I literally just said that quote to someone because I saw it on the platform that I follow. This writer that I follow. God, I can't remember her name at the moment, but she is a brilliant writer. She has these daily or weekly articles that she that she puts out around all things creativity, all things art, all things culture. And um, she posted that quote, and it was, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yes, serendipitous. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you're fine. And attention, it's the beginning. I really believe it. Attention is the beginning of devotion. When you learn to pet because i and i let me backtrack and say that i think attention is not something that's innate to our experience as humans i think the world and and even the creative process that you're talking about kind of programs us to not pay attention to be so worried about the output and the production that we're not slowing down enough to really be in the process and i think like true creativity starts with that idea of attention and that leads to care and that leads to empathy and that's where what I find so interesting when I started doing climate work is, of course, yes, there are incredible scientists and engineers doing a lot of this. And I've now become friends with many of them and I respect them deeply. But the people I found who were doing the work first and foremost, at least in a way that was communicative to the communities it affects, were artists. And I mean, that's my master's thesis now is how artists have kind of been the ones to take up a lot of the charge for the creative practice reflecting climate change and to be the ones who are saying, Here's this data. How can we get it into the hands of the communities? And I mean, you're such an incredible example of that. I, of course, want to talk about a water album. Um, and I really want to talk about your work with One Water, which is so exemplary of this exactly. But yeah, it's really just thinking about this idea of creativity is not about the output and it's not about the process. It is, in my mind, so much about learning to pay attention to the world around you, finding what it's trying to say to you, and doing that in community. Because you know, we all need isolation. We need individual practice. But I think our art is made so much stronger when it is placed alongside the voices of others. And that is what really makes it into a movement, right? That's what 
we're seeing happen right now with climate artists across the low country. And it's, it's a really incredible thing to witness and, and be even a small part of. Yes, yes, I agree with that 100%. Um, it, it challenges the idea of who are, who are the experts and what kind of um, knowledge or expertise we really value um, as it pertains to that. And I think, uh, especially with a, a water album, I knew I wanted to talk about water is something incredibly important to the low country in almost every, in almost every way. And how do we, how do we talk about something that is so complex, that is equal parts life giving, equal parts terrifying in the world that we currently live in? Because I always remind people, I was very young, I was a baby when Hurricane Hugo happened, but I've always heard about the impact Hurricane Hugo had on the low country. The week that we recorded a water album, which was five years ago yesterday, September 22nd, um, 2018, was the last day of summer. It was a week after Hurricane Florence just dodged a direct hit of the low country. And even at that time, Hurricane Florence was three times the size of Hurricane Hubert. So it would have been a catastrophic event had it hit the low country. Um, how do we talk about something like water that is again life life bringing life giving equal parts scary and terrifying as we grapple with the realities of climate change it has also shaped us culturally you know what we grow the things that we eat uh, our spirituality and all these things in a place that has also displaced black folk <laughs> and, and 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 continues to be one of the final vestiges of uh, white supremacy that dates back for centuries. How do we do that in a way that is not just me, artist, witness me do something, um, but participate in it? So we learn to, when we are consciously engaging our world and consciously engaging with community and consciously engaging with history, we're able to utilize and to honor cultural touch points, one of them being the call and response. Like, yes, this is going to be a concert, but yes, we're going to um, ground this in this contextualizing theme of water. But within that, we're going to talk about all the many streams that are born out of that. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about justice. We're going to talk about care. We're going to talk about uncertainty in a time of uncertainty. And we're going to be very, very intentional to do it in a place that we have the right to be at, that we've always had the right to be at. Not only that we have the right to be at, that we've actually built uh, that a place that's culturally important to so many people who are still with us, who have already transitioned and who are yet to come. And we're going to do that together. We're going to leave room for spontaneity and improvisation. We're going to synergize amongst each other. We're going to call the spirit in to do that with each other. And when we leave, when everyone leaves, they'll be able to remember this moment in history, but also take something with them to say, you know what, maybe I have thought of water in this way, but maybe this moment in this communal space has given me permission to activate myself in a way that I probably wasn't able to be activated 
before because I have my own hierarchy of needs and I, you know, I got to make my own ends meet, but this is a collective challenge that we have to face and we can't solve it, but by doing it collectively. So I think that's for me as an artist, that was one of the things that I tried to do with the water album, be very conscious of place, be very conscious of the subject matter, all the cultural elements, and still being on stage with a lot of artists who are brilliant. I'm talking about brilliant musicians and creators and lyricists and vocalists, some of which still even to that point had struggled being able to book shows in a city without a white proxy in 2018. You know, brilliant musicians who have toured nationally and internationally and things like that. So I just think um, it, it all it all comes back to this, for me, that root of what is actually driving the problems. This root of racial capitalism, <laughs> ultimately, that's a profit by any means which results in overdevelopment, which results in the exploitation of people, exploitation of people's labor, displacement of people. It discards us as human beings for profit, for wider profit margins, for profit, for profit, for profit. And it is stripping us of our humanity and our ability to actually be in concert in a community, not only with each other, but with nature. We're going against, we're going against nature and stifling our creativity, suppressing it depressing it is a part of that plan. I think we have to rage against that. And I think one thing that is really important to me in a lot of this work is the way in which, you know, we talk about climate as a central issue, but they're all connected. Like climate is not just this one thing that's mm -hmm. only going to affect one community. Um, there are communities who are affected certainly more than right. others. And Charleston is an especially interesting place to me in this. I, as many people know, I'm working right now largely in Charleston County and Beaufort County, which is, um, ranked Beaufort County, the number one place in America said to experience the worst effects of climate change. And what is happening in Beaufort is that actually the downtown historic mainland is most protected because you have barrier islands, but you have communities living on the barrier islands who are going to experience the worst effects of this. Charleston is a little different where we don't have a lot of barrier islands in Charleston County. So it is kind of the downtown peninsula that is going to really be hit the worst. And the way in which Charleston has now become a little bit more of like the public facing city for South Carolina climate change. And I think a lot of that is because when you look at photos of the peninsula, the houses that are right on the water are often the wealthiest, the oldest, the inherited money. And what they're doing, I mean, they're literally raising the wall around the city. And there's this push, even talking about Hurricane Hugo, it's, I remember growing up in Charleston and, you know, I also was not there during Hugo, but hearing just so much about it. And it, it was so consciously in, in the cultural mind and everyone was knew about Hugo. I mean, you were still witnessing damage. And 25 years later, there are houses in parts of the city that have still not been repaired. And yet you've got these large houses right on the peninsula that are representative of so many things, um, but mostly inherited money and wealth and status. And they are the ones that everyone cares about the most. And they're also the ones that drive tourism. They bring people to the city. And so the city cares about making those places look good where even when you get into kind of the urban-rural divide, a lot of communities that are going to be most affected by sea level rise are communities that live upriver. 
because the water, you know, it has to go somewhere. It doesn't just go right back out to the ocean. So it backs up the water, the rivers, and it sits and it breeds bacteria. And because so much of the cultural conversation in Charleston right now focuses on this one tiny area of the downtown peninsula, because it is the area with the money and with the wealth and with the status and the tourism, we don't care about these other places nearly as much. And to go back to that central question that I think is driving so much of my own work in this podcast and my academic research and otherwise is really about what are the places we view as we're saving and how did we get here that we can think about. I, and I recognize my own role in a lot of this, that I've been writing about Charleston and climate for the last few years and putting kind of a spotlight on Charleston as a place we're going to lose at the expense of many other counties in South Carolina, right? It's not like a hurricane hits and it just is going to affect one city. And that's something I think every artist has to reckon with of their own their own role in, in responding to these things and driving a conversation. But you know, the conversation I'm interested in driving these days is, yes, we've talked about Charleston. We've got engineers working in Charleston. We've got people, it's not fixed, but the conversation is there. So how can we bring that conversation to all these other places? Because Buford and Colleton County, both of which are right outside of Charleston, rank significantly higher than Charleston does on climate change effects right now. And we're not talking about that. We're not having that conversation. And I think it's artist role at the end of the day to pick that up and put it in the cultural consciousness, where when you look at the data, scientists and engineers are talking about these places. They're working there, right? But there's somehow a breakdown between the science and the data and the communities it affects and this larger realm of all of America, who right now, you know, we talk about climate change in the South and everyone immediately thinks of New Orleans or they think of Florida. And while Louisiana and Florida are both states that are going to be affected very deeply, you know, the Carolinas are also affected very deeply. It's not just kind of mired in one community. And so I'm thinking about art as a responsive but shifting force in that we have to constantly be keeping up with the data and, and paying attention to the world in order to shift our work. But our work has to be responsive to people's needs and people's desires. And it's, it's really interesting just to hear you talk about the experience of recording this album in Charleston and doing it live, because as anyone who has spent time in Charleston knows, it is is such a divided city in so many ways. And it's, it's not surprising to hear that. Um, I have found in my work that you know, climate change was not used. The words climate change were not used by city officials until they became buzzwordy platforms to run on, right? Before politicians were talking about this issue, it was artists who were talking about this issue. And it was artists who really drove the conversation to even make it so that people understood it enough that they were putting pressure on city officials. I'm thinking about how that's changed now um, in good and bad ways. And Again, like you're talking about Hurricane Florence, and it's, it is really interesting to me because we have had so many near misses of hurricanes the last few years. And I think this cultural memory of Hugo has started to die out enough that I've talked to people. I spent, I spent the summer back in um, the Low Country doing a lot of this work, and I was talking to people who've moved down from New York, and they're like, well, yeah, we have hurricanes in the South, but they don't hit Charleston. <laughs> and it just, <laughs> that perspective just blows my mind a little bit. And so, on the one hand, I think art. In some ways, it has to not incite fear, but really make make people aware that this is this is a reality. But I also think the danger with climate art is that a lot of climate art tends to focus only on the danger and the fear and the awareness, and it doesn't give people any hope or strategy, strategies of resilience. And that is where I think your work has always pulled me in, because you're talking so much about working with the water and, and thinking about the water as kind of a way to wash away and reveal what is wrong with, with a lot of this place and to think about collectively 
and and I, I want to talk about the experience as well of recording a water album because it was a collective and live experience. And I think that's so powerful. But your work is so rooted in resilience and hope and collectivity at ways that don't come at the expense of recognizing the violence and the frustration and the suffering. But you're not leaving people hanging to say, well, what do I do now? You know, I think you're giving them strategies to move forward. And that is so powerful and where I think climate art really, really needs to, to move. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. Uh, it's very interesting because hope has always been, and I don't mean hope as in like just not frivolous hope, but like real hope has always been a very important thing, as important as faith, as important as justice in my community, in our history. Um, and it's important that even when you're talking about something that can be as terrifying as the reality of climate change, as the reality of the water, when you're not working with it, you know, when you've been put in a position where those people who have power, a level of power over you have been not working with it, and then you become the bearer of those um, results, it was important to be able to say, hey, listen, to open the album, uh, because it's not only an album, it's music, but as we know as artists, it can be so much more than that if we change the way we understand creativity or creative process and its function, if we change the way that we understand the importance of culture, community, all these things. It's important to liken myself to the water in that way. Like it is, I have a need to feel and be felt. <laughs> I, it, 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 it is political like me. It is black like me, you know, meaning my experience as being black, our people's experience, the anti-blackness that we experience in this country, um, the ways in which that we have been moved around and discarded uh, for profit. Um, is not something that is different in relationship to water uh, in the way that it's been uh, showing up, especially overdevelopment and things like that, et cetera, et cetera. But it was important to also talk about all these things and say also, you know, what they're going to do when the water keeps rising, yet they realize that the water won't drown us. It's, it's sometimes that bit of hope that says, but you know what? These systems will fail. Um, these oppressive systems will fail. We will be a part of the solution when they fail. Uh, we will accelerate their failure and we will replace it with something that is more in line uh, with what it means to work with nature, to be, uh, again, a part of nature, to you know center indigenous knowledge, all these things that are required for us to really save this planet and save our people but you cannot leave out hope i don't think that you cannot you, can, you can't leave out hope and it's important even as i came back to the low country a place that i grew up in for like 20 years my first 18 years coming back to the low country even there was a period where i had to say okay so in this methodology that I've been working on that pulls from my own artistic process, but it really centers creative process in its stages. It's iterative and linear. The idea of this commitment to pre-production, what does that mean? That means intense 
and serious reflection that allows us to really sit down and say, who am I before this work begins, you know? And, and what makes up this who that I am? Who am I when the work ends and how does my work help me to get there? You know, because who you are and who you're bringing to the work that you're doing, whether you're an artist, you're an engineer, you're a scientist, you are a public official, who you are is going to inform the creative process that you engage in as you're doing that work, how intensely you encounter the world as a conscious person and what you bring a value that is new into that role. What that commitment to pre-production told me, you just can't come back down here and all of a sudden think you're going to create a project that, that requires a level of attention that you can dictate to people anything. There needs to be reflection. There needs to be deep listening. There needs to be this gathering of understanding, this thoughtful engagement with people so that when you finish that process or when you feel like that process, which can be ever going, everlasting, you know, you feel like, okay, now I can get to a point where I can say, not only do I know what I need to engage in this creative process, I also can then think to my imagination and what I would want to engage in this creative process and do that in concert with community, with people that are around me. I've given myself a chance to be in deep reflection and consideration of community needs. And I think that could be something of value that engineers, scientists, water officials who have not generally worked in ways that put them into that type of contact with community, but now the moment requires it and will require it going forward. How are we committing to that level of pre-production where we can say, yeah, I have my expertise, but there are also the there's also the expertise of people who've lived through this, who the, pe the people who have been in this community navigating all of these issues for so long and the imagination, the creative processes that they have should be in directly in concert. But before we may be even able to do that, there's some historical harm that we have to address. The more we continue to try to ignore that and think we can just solve without considering the impact of that, we'll continue to fail. And that, that, that place where I'm from is an example of that, where these two lakes converge at a time. There are still black folk in my community in the small town of Pineville who remembers when those infrastructure projects came through under the Roosevelt administration and how many black people it displaced pulling black people from their porches, you know, so the rush of have to having it, have, having to have it finished is why in some areas of, you know, Lake Moutry and Lake Mary you go through and you still see trees protruding from the water, graves that couldn't be moved. It's not any different than stories we hear about Lake Lanier and these other lakes and places, these infrastructure projects, because I'm thinking about that as a part of climate change too, making cities and communities more resilient, we are going to see lots of infrastructure projects take place with resiliency and climate change in mind. But are we approaching this from a methodology standpoint? Are we considering the things that we should be considering, that we should be uh, incorporating and learning from creative people? People, it, it just baffles my mind sometimes, but, but uh, yeah, I'll stop, I'll stop there. I talk to a lot of people in the academic world as a folklorist, and they're, 
I work a lot with like urban planners and engineers and, and even history students. People are always really surprised to hear how many, myself included, folklorists there are working on environmental and climate work. And we are actually kind of launching a program right now at UNC that will build out over the next few years that is like an environmental humanities track in the folklore and American studies department. And I've talked to people in fields like anthropology or environmental sciences, and they're, they're almost upset that we're getting that here in American studies. And when I think about it from a methodology standpoint, it's exactly what you're saying, where my answer to it is because we value so much the scientific knowledge, often at the expense of the community knowledge. And I think as a folklorist, they, you cannot have one without the other. And I, I feel really strongly that like any film project, any data project like needs to have I think it should be a folklorist, but some sort of community liaison, someone who understands the communities you work with. And I fight engineers about this all the time because I'm like, and not just engineers, I'm using, I'm scapegoating them a little bit right now, but it's, it's most people in data sciences where you run these large studies about these effects and these reports and you find this data out and that's it. You know, it's like the work I'm doing right now in Beaufort County comes from a report that came out in ProPublica in 2020. And it ranked every county in America off a certain, I think it's seven different climate factors. And it found that this one county is set the highest. And yet, where's the responsibility with that? That it just drops off. That 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 knowledge was never communicated to the people it affects, right? And then when you go and you start working with people who do have this cultural knowledge and do have cultural experiences and have lived through these things and can actually say, here is how we're seeing that data affect us and play out, but also... Here is how we place that in the larger scope of our history. Um, I work a lot, and I call it folklore futurisms, but I work a lot with like Afrofuturists specifically, and this idea that we have to be collectively thinking about the future, especially with climate work, which we don't tend, we don't really tend to do a ton in the art world, is really, really thinking through this futurist lens. But we can't do that at the expense of the past. Of we've, it's kind of a threefold process. Of art asks us to pay attention. And when we're paying attention, we can think about how did we get here and where do we go from here? And that really does have to be this like collective and communal process. And it can't just be the scientists doing all the climate work and not translating into the communities or the artists working separately. I'm like, the power will come when we can bridge that gap and when we can say, yes, fine, it's not your responsibility is to collect the data. Maybe you don't have to be the ones to go and be on the ground with talking with the communities. But the people who can do that work are the artists and the folklorists and the archivists, the community liaisons, the activists. And you need to be prioritizing them as part of this process and not leaving environmental humanities people out on the side because there are ways we can work together that will make this powerful and that will speak to that change. Um, because the data doesn't reflect the lived experiences, right? The data doesn't tell us how it felt to experience something and to live through it. And the people who can tell you that are the storytellers and we need to be prioritizing them in this work. Um, I will say I teach some folklore courses through my graduate program and we were having a conversation about this this week and there's two things that I was thinking about from kind of an academic standpoint in relation to what you're talking about, which is um, number one, there's a prison abolitionist named Maryam Kaba who does some incredible work, but her philosophy is that hope is a discipline. And I say that to people all the time because hope is not, it's not inherent, especially in this day and age. We have to make an active practice to be hopeful. And I talk about it in this newsletter is the idea of gritted teeth optimism. But hand in hand with that is a quote by James Baldwin that I actually read to my students yesterday. And he says, I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. 
To be a pessimist means you have agreed that human life is an academic matter, so I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. And I love that quote, and I come back to it all the time, and thinking about it even through a climate lens, it's like, the land will survive whatever it's meant to survive. I might not. But even detaching this idea of climate from me and from humans, because I, I work a lot with what we call ghost forest, which are the, the forest of trees that are getting killed off by saltwater. And you drive over places that have flooded and you see these trees rising up out of the ground and, and they're black and they're dead and they're not growing. Um, but they too tell stories, right? And so even detaching the idea of storytelling from something that is human only and detaching the idea of climate from something that is set to happen in the future. Because climate change and sea level rise and flooding, like they have happened. Communities have already been lost to this. And so even prioritizing, if we can't speak to the people about it, how can we pay attention to the natural world? And like those trees growing up out of the lake, like they tell a story as much as anyone. So it's all, it's, there's so many different layers to how we process all of this, but so much of it is building these connections and bridging these gaps, whether it's between data science and local communities, whether it's between climate and hope, whether it's between, I don't know, now I'm blanking, but it's finding, it has to be done in community. Like it, all of this work, it has to be done in community. And of course I wanna touch on here, um, your work with One Water, which I think does so much of this and is really is bridging a lot of those gaps. But yeah, that's my that's my rant on hope and climate for the morning. <laughs> no, that's really important. And it, it, I was listening to this week um, Baldwin's uh, speech on the artist's struggle for integrity, and he talks about the artists know the poets. He would say as he used that word to um, denote, you know, all artists. The poets know something that the politicians don't, that the soldiers don't. We know we are the people, the creative people who have been able to communicate what it is like to be here and survive here. You know, the things that are unavoidable, love, death, loneliness, despair, all these things what it feels like to exist and what it feels like to survive, what it feels like to experience all of those things. And I don't see that anymore. I, I just, I'm at that point where I don't see that as separate from the important, from the important work that, you know, scientists, engineers, people who build things, but they're building things for people <laughs> ultimately. Um, so you have to be able to, incorporate in community all of these aspects if we're going to not only survive into the future but thrive into the future but with the, the work with one water i became uh, the u.s water alliance's uh inaugural artist in residence back in 2020 like in the middle of pandemic in october of 2020 and there was some for me there was a bit of a fear because we were all shelter in place I'm a performer, you know, I'm a, a hip hop artist. I'm in the studio with my producers. I'm in the studio with musicians and we're together. And for the first time, we couldn't be at all. And so I'm like, what the hell am I going <laughs> to do in my residency? I was thinking to myself, like, oh, damn. And it gave me time to reflect again. 
Um, sometimes when you sit, when you're still, my grandma used to always tell us, be still, y'all turn, just be running around all the time, be still. And it, it allowed me to be still enough to reflect and to identify some of the ever present principles and processes that exist in my work and what gave my work meaning and what tethered my work to where I'm from, to my cultural identity, to my history. And I found all these, all of that. I found, I was able to find all of that and work that into an approach, into a methodology that I've been refining over from over the last two years to now, which I'm getting to a really comfortable place in the, the finished product of that refinement. And something that is not, not only finished, because I think in some ways an artist's work is never finished, but something that can also be alive and that can be activated by creative processes that someone else would bring to it. But the challenge still remains during that residency, as I've moved outside of that residency and, and continued that work as a senior fellow of arts and culture with the U.S. Border Alliance and working along, working with other, you know, public utilities, working with other partners and organizations in as far as artistic and cultural strategies and integration, not just the, the struggles remains, not just bringing in arts and cultural things as a topical aspect of what you're doing. But from the inception on, let's think about, let's be thinking about the importance of creativity and collaboration and real creative process um, and art and culture in these com in the communities that we're looking to go in and not dictate to, but co-create with that we're going in to engage with thoughtfully, to listen to, because there's even a step that comes before, we come back to that pre-production, there's a step that comes before co-creation and collaboration. There's that step that, that, that you have to ask someone like, does this collaboration even make sense? Are we speaking the same language? Like I do believe, I believe unity is important, but unity is a state of being, it's not an action plan. Like what are we unifying around? Are we unifying around something that is uh, justice oriented, that is uh, centered on the idea of um, equitable engagement and equitable practices in all things? Are we uh, unifying around the idea of restorative justice? What are we unifying around? And so that type of, which is probably going to be my life's work from now going forward as long as I'm here, is that full integration and full integration of creative principles, cultural strategy, all things arts and culture, not just do this arts and cultural thing for about 10 minutes in my program slot. No, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't want that. And that's gonna be a challenge because as you all know, um, these are really sometimes, sometimes, oftentimes, rather, holistic solutions are not welcome. That's just the reality. What we are talking about in this conversation is holistic solutions. If it could be simplified into anything, we are talking about the holistic solutions to climate this climate catastrophe that we have brought ourselves to, 
holistic solutions for saving people's lives now and into the future, holistic solutions that are sustainable for people to continue to not only survive, but thrive, um, and for us to be in relationship with nature. So I think creativity, arts, and culture play a huge, huge part in that, alongside many other, many other uh, areas of expertise. But we have to, we have to, we have to shift our thinking around the narrative that society has put onto what it means to be creative and the importance of creative process. How can we think, I love the idea of holistic solutions, how can we think about holistic solutions in terms of regionalism and the fact that there are so many climate movements in this country and yet so few of them engage meaningfully with the South? Um, or if they do, it's often in the wake of disaster that we wait until it's something like a Hugo or Katrina to engage. How can we think about building holistic solutions in this moment so that we're prepared for the future and we're building resilience before we need to be resilient? You know, I one of the things that I realized when I got back here, I sought out the, I had to go and seek out a lot of the guidance of the elders with it here in the South, in South Carolina. When I came back to the Low Country and that's how I would was even able to gather more information about the history of my small hometown. That's why in my art, there are certain, from a musical standpoint, sonically and musically, the, the night at my show, it wasn't only young people there, it wasn't only millennials there. There were older folks in the audience, boomers, silent generation. There were people who I, realize that I needed to go and seek them out to let them know that I value their knowledge, I value their experience, I want their mentorship, uh, I want their guidance, and then challenge myself as an artist to not wait for validation from anyone else, but to say, I'm going to talk about water in this way, and maybe if I do that, and as I'm trying to actively build community in this iterative process that I'm engaging in, it will illuminate other people who are already doing this, which ended up being a result. And again, going back to the function of art, it is not just important in that moment, or it is not just only important as a body of musical work that you listen to and then turn off and then go to the next musical body of work that you feel like listening to in that moment, it can serve as a way to tether you to where you are, tether you to the moment, but also connect you to other people who are doing the work. So you end up, uh, I don't know, I hate the word networking for some reason, but you end up building community with other people who are in the same place that you are at, or even if they're not exactly in that same place, it's a, it's a kind of lateral aspect of community. I don't, I don't always need to wait for the big organization that is, you know, doing all that big, big work. How do I connect with people on the ground? And sometimes putting out that beacon of hope via your art, if you are an artist, because that's what you're tasked to do, to create, to express, like Bowen said, what it's like to be here and to survive here and to have that optimism. Sometimes all people need is that beacon or that lighthouse to say, that's me too. Hey, let's, can we, let's build Let's, that's kind of how some of this started. There were people in the audience at a Water album who, after Water album was over, they ended up reaching out to me. And I can remember 
them bringing documents, one person in particular bringing like lots of documents about what the city has been doing over the course of decades to people in a specific part of the city. We met at a hotel in their lobby and were going just over documents and documents and documents. And that ended up being a lot of the initial conversations um, that ended up growing into continuously, continuously by many other brilliant people and many other brilliant minds and collections of people. But those initial conversations I have seen grow into, you know, a lot of the advocacy that so many people are, uh, have been participating in our friends of Gassy Creek. You know, I can read some of those engineers and some of those uh, hydrologists, some of the people were in the audience for a water album. And after being in the audience as an artist, I'm sitting here having conversations with, with those folks and looking at documents. And I'm like, well, you know, as an artist, I know what I can do. Maybe my role in this is to help elevate, to help introduce to you to this person or more people that we all have a role in, in, in this work. And it is important for us to function at our highest and best use of our expertise so that we can end up filling and, and meeting all the intersection, if that makes sense. It makes sense. Absolutely. I think there is power in grassroots and collective activism. And what I found, I was a human rights major before in another lifetime. And I, I spent a lot of time traveling the world looking at these large human rights organizations and the harm they often cause versus the, the grassroots and collective local organizations who were really making significant change. And it was that work that actually led me to decide to come back south and to look at how that's being done here. And so to see it start to start to come full circle is, is a really powerful thing. And yeah, there's so much power in bringing people together. And I think to be an artist in 2023 is to be an organizer. And I think that scares some people that their art has to be activist focused. And I try to reframe it of you know, you don't have to be pushing a specific political agenda. Sometimes it is just about organizing your community and you don't know where that will lead. That might lead to significant and deep activism. But I think to be an artist well is to not be alone. And that is, that's the core of this project is to say there are all these people. I used to think I was going to come back south and be the only one writing about rural places, which is so insane when you really backtrack and think about it. And what I found and, and part of what led us to create Good Folk is there are so many people already doing this. And our role is to be the force that can kind of bring them together and to let people know like there is more power in our collective voice. And there is more power when we do this as a group and as a community. And it's just been amazing to see that grow. And, and I'm so grateful to be in community with you and to have you here and, and to see how this is going to continue to grow. But um, I know we are up on our time, which is, I, as always, when I talk to you, Benny, I could talk to you for hours and, and we'll be in many, Likewise, many yeah. more conversations about all of this. And, you know, Benny and I are working on some things behind the scenes up our sleeves for anyone who's interested in yes. Southern climate work. So stay tuned on that. But, stay tuned. I'm excited. Benny, I do have one last question for you, which is what we ask all sure. of our podcast guests. And I'm going to leave it open to you to take it however you would like. But that question is, what do you believe in? That is a great question. I, I believe that I am, that we are made of the very same things that the universe is made of. Uh, 
I believe in my faith. I believe that the first thing God did was engage in creative process in a manner, in a manner where the consideration for the world around in that conscious engagement thrusted God into this process of bringing something new of value into the world. And I think about this often, you know, the void that was the world and the silence that hovered over the waters thrusted God into creative process. And I believe I'm made of the same things God is made of as we all are. And that same things the universe is made of. And I believe that creativity is innate in all of us. And it reminds us, it keeps us, it allows us to cultivate and save our own humanity, a humanity that is under attack right now constantly. And I believe that creative process by the intensely conscious human being in their collision and encounter with the world around them and our ability to bring new things of value into the world will be one of the things, one of the important things that saves us. And I invite everybody to rethink the importance of creativity in their life and to see their life as a creative process in terms of creative process. That's what I believe. What a way to end. It's beautiful. <laughs> Benny, for anyone who wants to find your work and follow along, and, and everyone absolutely should, where can they find you? They can find me on uh, my website. It's Benny Star with two R's, SC as in South Carolina.com. Um, social media handles will generally be Benny, B E N N Y underscore star with two R's. Um, and yeah, just, just uh, follow along, and uh, I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be in conversation with you and just everyone that I've yet to be in conversation with, I'm looking forward to it. Benny, I'm so grateful to be in conversation with you. It's truly, this is the highlight of my day and week. And yeah, I'm so Likewise. excited to see where everything goes. And to everyone who is listening, wherever you are in the world, have a good day, good night, be good, stay good. Gave a $20 bill to a woman on the street for a fresh meal in front of a hotel that clipped the ribbon where the black folk used to be now hipsters living. Poor folks under the bridge, yeah, that's the black zone. Black folks still get forced out of their black homes. So whenever I approach the topic or broach the logic, you better believe I'll be talking in a black tone. I'm witness to a city that turned God into capital. Bread and wine ain't really divine in this town. God bless the children who living through all that. So maligned, yet aligned with this sound. See, I'm not a rich white girl in white pearls riding through the hood just to make it to the brewery. This ain't nothing new to me. It's another thing, when your life raft is in the path of a hurricane, what you gonna do when the water keeps rising? Tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising.
Tell me what you gonna do. Yeah. Tell me what you gonna do. Yeah. Tell me what you gonna do. Tell me what you gonna do. Put the black man on the boat. Black woman on the boat too. Spilling blood in the field is real, so everything a nigga sing feels spiritual. Came here in the Lord's name. White man brought the world war. We got a boat full of rebels and we pulling up. Revolution on the shore. Tell me what you gonna do when the water starts rising. Yeah. Tell me how you gonna survive it. What you gonna do when the water starts rising. Yeah. How you gonna colonize it? What you gonna do when the rain brings heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us? What you gonna do when the water keep rising? You realizing that the water don't drown us? What you gonna do? Gave a $20 bill to a woman on the street for a fresh meal In front of the hotel that clipped the ribbon where the black folk used to be Now hipsters living poor folk under the bridge That's a black zone Black folk get forced out of the black home Whenever I approach the topic or approach the logic You better nigga be talking in a black tone I'm a witness to a city that turned God to capital Bread and wine ain't really divine in this town God bless the kids who living through all that Maligned and aligned with this sound I'm not a rich white girl and white pearls Who riding through the hood just to make it to the brewery This ain't nothing new to me This is another thing When your life raft is in the past of a hurricane what you gonna do when the water keep rising yeah tell me how you gonna survive it what you gonna do when the water keep rising yeah how you gonna colonize it what you gonna do when the rain brings heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us what you gonna do when the water keeps rising you realizing that the water don't drown us what you gonna do white charleston tell me what you gonna do rich charleston tell me what you finna do i can't hear y'all tell me what you gonna do I got a message for you. Tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising. Yeah, tell me how you gonna survive it. What you gonna do when the water keeps rising? Yeah, how you finna colonize it? What you gonna do when the rain brings heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us? What you finna do when the water keeps rising? You realizing that the water won't drown us. What they finna do? Yeah, I wonder to myself. Tell me what they finna do. Yeah, yeah, I wanna know right now. Tell me what you finna do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, tell me what you finna do, yeah, tell me right now what you finna do when the water keep rising, tell me what you finna do when the water keep rising, yeah, tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising, tell me what you finna do when the water keeps rising, how you gonna survive it, tell me how you gonna colonize it, tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising, tell me what you gonna do. Tell me what you gonna do When the water keeps rising What you gonna do One question for you I don't know about you Tell me what you gonna Tell me what you gonna do I don't know Y'all in trouble Y'all about to be in trouble 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 Hey, you know I do a little bit of that Shout out to you We gonna keep this energy going Where my boy at? I met this dude like 12 years ago. We were freshmen in college. And I'm gonna tell you, September 10th, 2010 was the first time I ever performed on any stage and it was at the music farm. And I um, performed at the music farm only because my boy Matt Monday, who at that time, who at that time was going by Righteous, he, had, he was opening up for currency at the music farm and he called me up because I just put like my first mixtape out or something like that and he was like, yo, Ben, I am gonna split my time with you because I got like 20 minutes, 25 minutes to open up for currency. And at that time that was, I mean at any time that would be a huge deal, you know what I mean? So he was like, I'm gonna split my time with you and I'm gonna give you 15 minutes. 
because you need to be on that stage and you need to perform. And that was eight years ago on the 10th. And that's my boy. And that'll always be my boy. That'll always be my man, a hundred grand. So I want to get Matt out here and we're going to do, you know, the song that we, we had. I don't know if y'all ever heard of it, but we're going to see. We gonna, y'all want to do that? Y'all feeling good about that? Make some noise for Matt Monday. You yeah, ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. About to have some church in here. About to have some church in here. Y'all feeling the energy? Y'all want to feel a little bit of that? Let's go.